What we're doing tonight is focusing our attention on the foundation of that everlasting singing. Through eternity, we're going to sing on and on and on, and it will be never-ending joy, ever-deepening joy. And uh, in a dark night like this, we just want to remember how it is we got such a promise, sinners like us. So I'm going to ask you, if you brought a Bible, which probably you didn't on a Thursday night, but you could reach for one. This is a pew Bible I've got in my hand, and if I know there probably aren't enough to go around, but if you'd like to reach for one, let's turn to Hebrews. And I'm going to look again at those verses we looked at Sunday morning. We'll take one phrase tonight and focus on it. But we'll read verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, that's the phrase we'll come back to, when he had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, let's just take that phrase for a few minutes here before we eat together the Lord's Supper. It's found there in verse 3. When he had made... Purification for sins. And let's break it into three parts. He, that's part one. There's a person here. Of sins creates the problem that he had to deal with. So we'll take that second. Had made purification. We'll take that third. And we'll simply dwell on each of these, and then we'll go to the table together. Let's start with the he. Let's never forget that there's a person here. There's a person who's alive, who laid down his life, who loves, he thinks, he feels, he wills. And even today, he has a body. It came down from that cross. And when it rose from the tomb, though it had special qualities about it, they recognized it, they could touch it, it could eat fish to prove that it was not a ghost. So we have a a whole person that we're going to relate to forever and ever. He's alive today. He's at the Father's right hand. He is personal. 
He promised never to leave us or forsake us. He promised to be with us. He is here in this room right now by his spirit listening to me. He is as close to you as the person next to you. He is real. He is a person. He is a he. He is there. He's real. Don't ever forget that. Cultivate a relationship with this person. Put Jesus at the center of your life. Relate to Jesus. You know, some of us became Christians through a, a form of evangelism that was exactly right. It said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's the right question. Sometimes we take it very lightly. But here's a person. And he's alive. And he is here. And he's in heaven. He can do that. And he's glorious. Let's see how glorious he is because it's the glorious of the glory of the person that makes the laying down of his life so spectacularly valuable and assuring. And there are at least seven things said about him in these verses. Let's just itemize them. Let's see me see if I can remember them. I've read this text so many times the last several weeks. I, I hope I can, but if I can't, I'll just look down and find them. He, he's the heir of all things. We saw that. He created. Through him, all things were made. So he's the heir of all things. He created all things. This person. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. So if you want to know the glory, the moral beauty of the glory of the Father, read the Gospels and behold the person of Jesus. He's the radiance, the, the streaming out, the effulgence of the glory of God. He is, fourthly, the exact character or representation of the Father's divine nature. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Fifth, He upholds the universe, or all things, by the word of his power. So today, this person is infinitely powerful. He is speaking all the solar system and all the Milky Way and all the other galaxies into being and all the molecules and all the wood and brick of this building. He's speaking them into being and holding our flesh and hair and skin and lungs and tissue and fingernails in being right now. If he were to stop thinking you into being, you would cease to be. That's how dependent you are on this person. And the last one, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. And the seating is an enthronement. It's an enthronement. He is the king of the universe. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And he reigns over all governments. He reigns over the devil. He reigns over weather. He reigns over heart attacks and cancer and Parkinson's. He reigns tonight. And there is a seventh. Therefore, he's greater than the angels. Sort of sounds like an anticlimax. But the rest of the chapter is devoted to that. And I think I might preach on that on the 14th. Let's finish this chapter up. The utter superiority of this person to all other heavenly persons save the Father. So that's number one. 
We are dealing tonight with a person. He's alive. He's real. And he's all those things. And that's the person who made purification. But let's, let's go to pick up the sin factor first. It says at the end of that phrase, he made purification of sins. Sin is a reality. It's a power in the world. When you read the book of Romans, you have to come to terms with the fact that sin is not just a little isolated thing we do here and there. It's not just deeds. It's a power. It moves in the heart. It moves in the will. It moves in the world. It takes hold. It's got a grip on every human being. It's an awful thing. Awful thing. Everybody in this room is infected with it. Some have a remedy at work in their lives that will bring them to glory. Perhaps some tonight don't. But we're all infected. It's like a disease. And it's lethal. We will all die physically. He, he has not willed to remove that, that aspect of the curse. We will all pass through it unless Jesus comes. So, so sin is a is a universal thing. It's a horrid thing. It's a diseased thing. Let me look at chapter 3 with you just to let this book define it for us. What is it and how bad is it? Chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, or maybe we'll read all the way to 19. We have become partakers of the divine... No. We have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry? For 40 years, was it not with those who sinned? There's the word. Was it not with those who sinned that he was angry, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And now keep reading and you'll hear it defined. And to whom did he swear that he would, that they would never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? There's the definition of sin. Disobedient to God. And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So there are three things you must, I want you to see here about sin so that you can really come to terms with this. I, I spoke over at the university last night to a group of 250, 300 students, and there were some unbelievers there, and one young woman came up afterwards and described her situation to me and she asked me if I thought she was guilty. And I won't describe the situation to you, but I'll tell you that the answer I give to almost everybody who asks me like that is uh, I said to her, probably you were, at least in part. And I said, and the reason I say that to you, rather than making you feel good by saying, no, it was probably all their fault, 
is because the gospel is not a message that we are not guilty for ha- for what we've done. The gospel is a message that there's a guilt remover. If we try to make ourselves feel good by saying, I wasn't guilty for that, I didn't do anything, or I'm not the problem in this relationship, we short-circuit the gospel. The gospel is for people who know how bad they are, who feel so bad, who know that they had a hand in the messed up relationship, who know that if they've got a, a say, a, an eating disorder or something, there's some of them in there. There's some choices being made that are wrong. And the freeing thing is to say, right in the face of God, yes, I'm guilty of that. And have God answer back, I have made a provision. So I want you to feel what sin is tonight. So let's just get these three things here that I just read. Number one, it is rooted in unbelief. All sin flows from a lack of trust in God. If we had perfect trust in the wisdom and love and power of God, we would not go against Him so freely and so often as we do. So there's root unbelief behind sin. Secondly, there's disobedience. You see that there in verse 18. Those who were disobedient. There's a will of God and we've gone against the will of God and we've disobeyed. And the third thing is, God is angry at sin. We are very quick in the 20th century to say that God is a loving God. They were very quick in the 18th century to say that God is an angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And both of these things are absolutely true. And depending on where you are between the 18th and the 20th century, you need to hear one of those messages or the other My guess is most of us live in the 20th century and we have heard very often that God is love, God is love, God is love. And we have not probably dwelt very long on the infinite wrath of God against sin. He is angry at sin. God is angry every day, Psalm 2 says. He is angry every day at sin. I just read a very good article that helped me get a handle on this because it argued that the cross is the outflow of the anger of God. Not just the love of God, the anger of God. The cross is the fruit of the wrath of God against sin. Because had he another way to deal with sin than the anger that he feels against it, that brought his son to suffering and death, he would have done it another way. The cross is an expression of two things, not just one thing. A just anger and an incredible mercy towards sinners. And so let's not short-circuit the gospel tonight. Let's reckon with the truth. We're sinners and God is angry at sin. It's a great offense against him. Now, finally, let's go to the gospel here in this word purification. Read it again there in verse 3. When he had made purification of sins. Now, I want you to see something in the words had made 
And I want you to see something in the words purification. The main thing I want you to see here in had made is that from the perspective of this writer and Christ's having taken his seat at the right hand of God, the work of purifying your sins is totally finished. It is so important to get a handle on this had made, not is making, not will make. Not at the Lord's table when you eat this, he makes purification. No way. He has made it. And then he sat down. That's one thing and it's over. And the enthronement is an honor and a tribute to the worth and the finishedness of that. And I want you to feel that tonight. That the purification that was made was made once for all. Don't have this in your mind. All right? I sinned a long time in my life. And then I found Christ. And I believed. And he interposed his blood. And he cleaned up the first half of my life. Now, I'm living a little bit by faith and still sinning. Don't think that way. I don't even want to finish the, the image. Don't think that way. The, the interposition of the blood was 2,000 years ago. Never repeated. Finished. For all your sins. The one that you will commit on your dying day, a year from now, 40, 50, 60 years from now. That purification happened then. This is an awesome gospel. Yes, it is open to great abuses. Paul had to deal with those abuses. Oh, well, let's sin that grace may abound. And those kinds of things. But he was willing to risk it. So was the writer to the Hebrews. He has made purification for sins. It's finished. A decisive thing happened to all your sins at Calvary. It doesn't get repeated at this table. Now, I want you to see this in just very briefly by walking you through several other texts to see that I'm not picking out something that I like. To emphasize, I'm picking out something to emphasize which this writer loves with all his heart and drove it home again and again and again and again. I just want you to see that. So would you walk with me if you're holding a Bible? If you're not, just listen carefully. I put them down on a piece of paper here so I can. Chapter 7, verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 26 and 27. Chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, referring to the Old Testament, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, since he didn't have any, 
and then for their sins, the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So there's the first one. Once for all when he offered himself. So the purification for your sins happened once for all and it happened by this he. This sevenfold glorious person offering himself up in a bloody death. The next passage to see it in is chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the great and more perfect tabernacle, that's the one in heaven, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all. There it is again. Having obtained eternal redemption. So you see what this writer wants you to get. That when once for all, he shed his blood and then took that blood into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, we receive an eternal redemption. The eternality of the finished redeeming work is finished. It is done. We don't add to it. It is eternal there, purchased. The third text is chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Nor was it that he should offer himself often. You hear it coming. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, there it is, once, at the consummation of the ages. That's another expression of what we saw last Sunday when it said, the Son spoke in these last days. When this Son stepped forward from glory and laid down his life, that was the consummation, the, the goal, the climax of the ages. And everything else is last days from then on. Once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there's a little different way of saying it. He put away sin. Now I'm going to insert a little parenthesis here that's theologically, theologically controversial, but I just... The burden of it on me for you to consider, not, not to settle tonight, but for you to consider one of the points of the Reformed theology is definite atonement, which means that when Christ died, the decisive putting away of sin he did for his own people and not for everybody. It does not mean that he didn't die for everybody in one sense of making the atonement available to all who believe. But what I'm reading here simply will not make sense if you try to apply it to everybody. Sins have not been put away for everybody. There's not an eternal redemption for everybody. Purification has not been finished for everybody. There is a sweet covenant bond between the bride and the bridegroom. 
by which an effectual work was wrought on the Calvary for the bride that is effectual and finished so that the bride is wholly clean. Now that's the end of the princess and I commend your study of it for years to come. It's a controversial issue, I know. And I don't insist that you understand or embrace it entirely. But you know, you need to know where I'm coming from and why I love these texts. Because I am a, I am the bride of Christ. And the covenant that he made with me and not with the world, the covenant that he made with me at the cost of his own blood to make me his bride is very precious. The love that he has for you and me as a covenant people is so precious. And it is rooted in a finished, effectual, full and complete putting away of our sins once for all on the cross, which has not been done for the world. It has been done for the bride. We need to feel the preciousness of that. Otherwise, we're going to feel like, well, I guess I'm forgivable tonight. Like the world is forgivable, but maybe not much more. Verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. You know who I think they are. The bride. You and me, believers, to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Look at chapter 10. We're almost done. Chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Your sanctification was purchased fully in the offering of Christ once for all. Once for all. Then chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One offering, once for all, for all sins, and it is finished. Last text, verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now that is an amazing verse. And the tenses of the verbs are so important. He has perfected. That's a perfect. He did it. It is finished. And the fruits abide. The next one is a present tense. Those are being sanctified, which is what's happening. 
So the marvel of that verse is this. What it's saying is, all those who by faith have been united to Christ, have had the Holy Spirit indwell them, and are progressively having their sins defeated, are perfect people before God now. Because of the blood of Jesus finished. If you are progressively being perfected, you are perfected before the Father. If you are progressively being sanctified and overcoming sins, not yet perfect in moral form here, that is the evidence of union with Christ such that all he achieved is now made over to you by covenant and the Father looks upon you wholly accepted and perfected in the Beloved. If you could get a handle on that, if you can live in that triumph, what a life you would live. I commend it to you tonight. If you've come as a visitor, you're welcome to eat with us now, provided you are being sanctified. That is, provided you are trusting in Jesus and thus are united with him in a personal relationship and thus have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, inclining you to fight sin so that you hate it. And the ones that you committed today, you're sorry about. And right now, as we move to the table, you're going to say you're sorry for them. And you're going to ask for power to do better tomorrow. And you're going to renounce all known sin in your life. And you're going to face the cross. You're going to receive forgiveness. And you're going to rejoice in the Lord and own Him as Savior. That's not perfection. That's battle. And if that's you tonight, eat with us. Eat with us. But if it's not, may the Lord bring you to that point before the service is over. We'd be happy to linger afterwards even to talk with you about it. It was this night on which the Lord was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it. And after he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's glorious, once for all, death until he comes. So we're going to do some proclaiming right now by eating and we're going to do some remembering by eating. And we're going to do some spiritual feeding on this glorious truth right now. And the Lord is going to draw near as we eat and nurture and build and strengthen our faith. Fit us to live in this glorious truth.